And we're live. Once again, welcome back to The Future Of. I'm your host, Jonathan Narvi, and I have a very special guest with me today, Lauren Oates, who will be talking about, with me about the future of conflict. It's a big topic. Uh, before we get into this, uh, I should, you know what, I'll, I'll just read off your, um, your, your little bio. Uh, not so little, I should say. Uh, oh, you know what? I closed the, I closed the tab. I said I was going to close all the tabs to remove all distractions, and that's what I did. So, uh, Lauren, you're you're <laughs> you're a, a, a professor. You're a head of organ organization. You've worked with the United Nations. Um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you're going to do a way better job than me, tabless. Go ahead. Sure. I didn't know where where the bio was that you found anyways, so it could be could be somewhat out of date. So sure, I'm happy to introduce myself. Uh, I am Lauren. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I'm a teacher. I instruct university, um, both at uh, Royal Roads University's School of Humanitarian Studies and also at the University of British Columbia in education uh, faculty. Um, I teach on international development and um, human security, and I do that because that's the field I work in in my in my day job, uh, which is uh, focused on education internationally and specifically education in conflict zones. So um, I've worked much of my career in Afghanistan, um, but also been in Syria and um, currently doing some work in Djibouti and the Horn of Africa and a few other hotspots around the Middle East and um, Africa and uh, Central Asia. Um, and my sort of passion and area of interest is how to deliver high quality education to people who are living in, um, in situations of, of conflict and especially to girls and women, how to make sure they have equitable access to education. And in the course of being a um, Canadian person who sort of goes between East and West regularly and has a one foot in each of those worlds and also a foot in academia and a foot in practice, um, I started to become, I guess you could say, hyper-conscious of the way we talk about uh, the, what's often called the other or people, people in the East or in, in the Global South how we talk about them here in Canada and sort of how woke culture in the West treats, um, treats the injustices happening to people abroad. And I got interested in that and uh, I'd say also angry about it. And so that's kind of a, a side interest of mine that mm. um, just comes part and parcel with, uh, with the work I do. Oh, well, we're going to uh, get into all of that. This is a, this is a great introduction. And uh, oh, well, let, let's do a little bit of technical housekeeping. Are you at a laptop right now? Is that a laptop? Yeah. Are you able to tilt the screen at all a little bit so that uh, uh, that a little bit back up, back up? Okay. Up. Yeah. There, now you're more centered. Perfect. Okay, okay. great. <laughs> Your chin was resting on the very bottom of the screen, so. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It doesn't look like that to me. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. yeah. So now, so. yeah, yeah. So um, your... Um, I, I think not that you, we need to burnish your street cred any more than we already have, but uh, I, I think it's interesting that your story actually goes back to when you were quite young. This is not something that you went to school for. Well, it is something you went to school for later, 
but you got involved with this kind of thing very, very early on. Uh, I believe you were 15 years old. Can you tell that story? Sure. Yeah. So I was 14, actually. I was in the ninth grade here uh, in, uh, in Vancouver. And um, that was 1996, the year that the Taliban captured Kabul and became the government of Afghanistan and immediately started putting into place these edicts, closing girls' schools, saying women couldn't work outside the home, um, that they couldn't actually even leave their home unless the windows were painted black. Um, and um, they had to be accompanied by an immediate male relative, all these crazy edicts. And there was a story about it in the Vancouver Sun. And I was this kid who wasn't really good at sports. Um, I didn't really have any, you know, um, hobbies or talents uh, compared to my siblings. And I think my mom was kind of looking for something for me. Uh, and I was very interested in justice and the idea of justice. And I talked about that a lot. So my mom cuts out this newspaper article in the Vancouver Sun about the Taliban takeover of uh, Afghanistan and leaves it on my bed and uh, turned my whole world upside down. And it never really went back the right way. So I come home from school. I read this article. I definitely couldn't find Afghanistan on a map at that time, but I was outraged. And I think that that has a lot to do with um, the age that I was. I think that we have less... Um, filters, uh, you know, when, when we're children, we can call a spade a spade. And I saw very clearly that the idea of girls not being allowed to go to school because they were girls on the other side of the world was wrong. And it didn't matter if it was a different culture, different religion, different country than my own. It was just wrong. And I reacted um, to that. And so um, I sort of moped about it for a little while and decided I needed to do something. And uh, I eventually wrote up a petition and I asked people to sign this petition condemning what was happening. And uh, once I had a few hundred signatures, I sent it off to our government at the time. So that was when Lloyd Axworthy was uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs in Canada. And I sent it to the American administration and I sent it to the Taliban because I found their fax number on a website. They had a website <laughs> at the time. Uh, they didn't answer, but... Um, uh, that was the start, and uh, yeah, I don't think I expected it to become my whole life, but that's what happened. Hmm. That was the start. Wow. Well, uh, you, you've certainly uh, built up quite a uh, body of work around uh, all, all that you've done. So you, you've worked with the United Nations, you've worked, um, uh, and, and very often you're, you're overseas. You're, you're in the middle of these conflict zones. Uh, and uh, to that extent, um, you, I, I guess you, you would, part of your, your work would be helping to foster educational opportunities for women right, and young girls in these situations, uh, as well as, uh, as I understand it, uh, understanding what the need is on the ground so as to help uh, uh, get the resources that are needed to the people who need it. Is that, is that yeah, accurate? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in, in yeah. the past, the kind of traditional thinking was that in, in an emergency, whether it's a war or a natural disaster or something unexpected that, that happens, you focus on emergency humanitarian assistance. So you keep mm -hmm. people alive by making sure they have shelter, they have food, they have the, those really sort of, um, you know, basic, basic needs met. But things like education and what we call development mm -hmm. are are more luxuries for post-conflict time. 
And that thinking has changed now because the evidence suggests that uh, you actually need to address both um, as soon as possible. Um, so if you look at a situation like Syria now, you can already see the long-term impacts of all of these kids who have become refugees, who are migrants, who are out of school, like what that's going to mean for the country when it does eventually come to the point where it needs to rebuild, it's going to have this huge gap in human capital because of all the years of lost schooling for kids. So as soon as possible, uh, part of emergency assistance should also be social development, um, should right. be things like, like schools. So you do, you do development, you do education during conflict as well. That's right. the best practice. Right. It, trying to be a bit preventative and you sort of think of, you know, the Taliban actually, I, I'm not sure if it was Christopher Hitchens or, or someone else who was noting that, uh, you know, the Taliban is, is almost not an indigenous uh, um, group to, uh, to Afghanistan in that it grew up out of the refugee camps uh, of, of people who had, uh, you know, Afghan families who, who had uh, had to flee to Pakistan uh, when the Soviets invaded. And so those, those, out of those refugee camps where I guess they had nothing to do but read the Quran and, and um, get, um, I, I guess, uh, brainwashed, uh, they, um, a lot of them wound up becoming the, the proto-Taliban that eventually took over the country. Exactly. The Taliban are a consequence of an earlier phase of the Afghan war. Um, I mean, you say read the Quran, if a minority of them could actually mm. read. There were cabinet ministers in the Taliban government who were illiterate. Um, these were, I mean, that's really one of the characterizations of the Taliban was they were um, incredibly uneducated in every sense of, of the word. Um, mm. And, uh, uh, you know, th these were, they were a lost generation um, that were very effectively channeled towards these, um, um, you know, hostile ends in, in Afghanistan. Mm. So mm. Uh, not handling that well, you know, two, two generations before came back to bite Afghanistan later in a bad way. Right, right. Okay, so we, we've, you know, provided a bit of background and, and have talked about sort of, you know, Afghanistan has been uh, on the... I guess it's it's been I don't know on on the back burner. How, how do I describe this uh, uh, for you know it's it's not front of mind for a lot of uh, people who are maybe thinking of of say Syria or you know other maybe more uh, recent high intensity uh, conflicts. Um, but, you know, the good news is that Af Afghanistan's all solved. I was reading in a, an, an article, uh, it was from, from February, uh, the USA and, and Afghanistan, the Taliban had signed a peace agreement. And so I guess things are going swimming, swimmingly there now. Is that sort of, can you, can you update uh, us? So get me started. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a way to really sell people up the river. I mean, uh, for, it was an agreement between the Taliban and the US. And so the major party missing was, um, well, two, one, the Afghan government, the actual ruling government of the country, and second, the people of Afghanistan who have paid the heaviest price um, so far in, in this protracted conflict and will pay the heaviest price for any kind of power sharing agreement with, uh, with the Taliban. Um, and people are really, really anxious and rightfully so because 
the Taliban have been very ambivalent about their plans and they use a lot of conditional language when they talk about, you know, when they're directly confronted about their record in the past. Like, well, what are you going to do about girls schooling? Are you fine with girls going to school? Um, they'll say, yes, we're, we're fine uh, if they go to school in, you know, an Islamic way. Um, but there's rumors that that means madrasas only. It means study up to grade three only. So they use these very vague qualifications, but I'm not even sure that we could trust them to even offer incrementally better than what they offered when they ruled. There's simply no evidence that they've changed at all. And we know this because they do rule certain parts of Afghanistan as insurgents and they, they govern there and they govern in the same way that they did when they were the actual government. And just like when they were the actual government, that was one of the first things they, they do. When they come in an area, they shut down girls' schools. They tell women to stay at home. They terrorize potential dissenters and people who disagree with them. So, yeah, I, I don't think we have any reason to be optimistic that they've turned around. And we shouldn't be asking the Afghan people to trust them. Um, and also when a lot of blood and treasure has been invested in, uh, in democracy in Afghanistan, and Afghans bought into that idea, how do, how do we then turn around and say, we're just gonna ask you to let the Taliban into the government without being voted in, you know, without representing popular will. Can you just you know, allow them to, uh, to, to be part of the government and mm. um, dictate how you live your lives and what happens to your constitution and your political processes? Right, um, right. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Yeah, I think it's it's really uh, good for us to dig into what's happening in Afghanistan when we're talking about the future of conflict, because there's so many parts of this that are, um, it, it, it makes concrete, you know, certain ideas around, um, you know, how do we even, number one, uh, when, we, when we're talking about conflict, what are we talking about? Are we talking about war? Are we talking about, um, uh, yeah, let, let's, may, let's define some terms and come back to this in, in, in a second. So um, how can we think of conflicts in, a, uh, in an abstract and also in a, in a tangible way? Yeah, it's a really tough question, and it's why you don't really find consensus around the question of whether conflict is getting better or worse in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a debate hosted by the New York Times back in, I think, 2016, where they asked this question, is, is the state of conflict in the world improving or regressing? And uh, they had all these experts come on and basically not, not agree with each other. And one of the reasons is, is how you actually categorize or, or um, define conflict. Um, and we traditionally defined it as, uh, you know, war between two states. And today, most conflicts are actually intrastate conflicts. Um, they're civil wars, in other words. But at the same time, they also at least have a regional element. So even a war that looks like it's just within the state, like Afghanistan's, you have um, you know, the Americans involved. You have the Pakistanis very, very involved. You had all the 50-plus members of the NATO countries involved at one point. So it's, you, you often don't find those strictly domestic conflicts anymore. Um, and you find more insurgency type conflicts than, you know, two states going together. Um, so yeah, it all depends on how you actually categorize it in terms of whether you can say, is it getting better or worse? We could definitely mm. say that 
conflicts between two states are decreasing. There's less of that today, which is good. Um, and, uh, and it's a little bit harder to say um, what's happening with interstate conflicts. And another reason is because um, we have more data now than we did before. So if it looks worse, it might actually be because we know more and we have better access to what's actually happening in places. There's camera crews on the ground, there's census data, you know, there's human development data, the UN is there. So we have a much clearer picture of what's going on compared to what was happening in the past. And that can actually make things look worse. Whereas in the past, we just didn't actually know what was going on. We didn't know the extent of it. Right. That's analogous to what you what we see on the uh, human rights uh, um, front, where uh, the the countries that actually have it best, that where where people generally are free to do what they want, can say what they want, uh, they live lives uh, that are pretty safe, uh, pretty nice. Um, these are the countries, you know, the UK, US, uh, Australia, Israel, um, where uh, the, it, it seems like these are the worst offenders uh, because everything is so open. We we can see the data, whereas, yep. uh, you know, China isn't going to publish their, uh, you know, their version of their uh, whatever China's uh, Amnesty International uh, group would be. I'm sure they, you know, that doesn't exist they'd be in jail. Um, So we we have more data so we can see, yeah, as you say, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like conflicts are getting more rare, uh, at at least, you know, certainly large scale, you know, you think of of World War II or the Korean War, uh, uh, you know, tanks rolling through the countryside uh, bombers uh, strafing uh, 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 cities and, you know, that kind of mass destruction. Uh, it's almost unthinkable, uh, like a, a NATO versus Warsaw Pact style uh, style conflict. It's just not going to happen. Uh, or if it does, that's the last one that we're going to have. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, a... a, a a situation like Afghanistan, um, you know, I, I guess I look at it as, is that a model for the future of conflict uh, in, you know, in other places around the world? And, and uh, if so, what lessons can we take from it about uh, how we can do things differently, better in future? Uh, what, what mistakes have been made? How do we fix that? There, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll, I'll, I'll let you jump on. Oh, that. yeah. 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 I mean, well, one thing about um, wh- whatever place in the world is the most unstable basket case place is, is where you will attract certain activities where it's easier to do those activities in those conditions. So one example is, um, uh, is growing poppies for opium. So right now, Afghanistan is a very um, suitable place to to grow to to actually grow poppies, but also to manufacture opium. You have both the the raw materials being produced there, but also um, the labs turning it into heroin and exporting it all over the world. And um, and opium production has just moved from the most unstable places in the world over time. So actually, you go way back to like around the 1930s. 
it was uh, it was made in Sicily. You know, the, mm. the the mob were in charge. There wasn't really a great rule of law. It was an easy place to to break the law. And uh, when that changed, they had to move on. And so opium was made in the Golden Triangle in um, uh, Southeast Asia. And then it you know, moved into Turkey. And then it moved into Afghanistan when it got harder to produce it in Turkey. Turkey now produces some um, legal um, opiate products, but uh, illegal opium is, is produced mm. in Afghanistan, you know, but in the highest volumes in the world. And should things stabilize in Afghanistan, it'll probably go to... Syria, I guess, or, you know, wherever else it's easiest to, um, to make it. Um, so you'll find the same thing with, you know, human trafficking and um, all, all kinds of, um, you know, rule breaking and, and law breaking and, and terrorism. Um, you know, and it's not a coincidence that Osama bin Laden chose Afghanistan as his, as his hub um, from which to plan the 9-11 attacks. And this seems to be lost on um, the current administration that uh, if they walk away from Afghanistan and, and allow it to remain unstable, it will come back to bite them later in one form or another, because that has been what has happened historically. Right. So, so the, the, can't really to ignore it. Right. So the, the suffering that comes from conflict zones is not just at the sharp edge of, you know, fighters, shooting at each other it's it's all this destabilization creates all kinds of ways for human beings to make life horrible for each other um yeah. I, I would point out by the way uh the image behind behind me is a right. poppy field uh, uh yeah. now um that's a, again this is more about the i i maybe i i was thinking about the past of of conflict you know it, it's so associated with, with world war one and mm -hmm. uh, in Flanders field, the poppies grow. Um, so um, when we talk about, um, let, let, let's, let's look at another uh, area like Syria, where we see the same kinds of, um, or, or similar kinds of uh, um, trends play out. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the destabilization of, of the civil war, obviously that has not just, it not just entails suffering for the people living in Syria, but uh, caused mass destruction in, in, in terms of waves of refugees going all around the world, um, mm -hmm. which uh, you know, disrupted Europe and, and uh, you know, large parts of the world that just were not accustomed to these, these huge migration flows. And th this has consequences. I I'm curious, what are your thoughts about um, about where Syria is at now, and and uh, what this shows us, if anything, about the future of conflict? Yeah, I mean, firstly, my heart breaks for Syria. It's um, <laughs> I, I I spent some time in Syria before the war, and um, and I I know now that so many of the places I, I saw don't exist anymore and that the, the country will never be the same or it won't be the same for a very, very long time. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was quite farther ahead um, compared to Afghanistan in terms of its levels of human development and economic development. And it was, you know, of course it was a horrible authoritarian dictatorship, but it was at, at peace technically, um, as long as you weren't a dissenter, um, you know, th things were at peace. And, um, it's you know my it's it's one of the world's worst conflicts now probably the second worst after mm. Afghanistan, um, so there are those differences but then there's a lot of similarities between Syria and Afghanistan 
um, you're going to have this, yeah, protracted conflict. You have all of these um, secondary impacts, the creation of terrorist networks that spread well beyond Syria's borders into neighboring countries and, and beyond and washed up on our shores as well with ISIS terrorist attacks in, in the West. Um, you have the lost generation. You have the, the migration. So Afghanistan is still the largest group of migrants in the world. Um, and Syrians are second, where Afghans tend to be more economic focused migrants now, but um, Syrians are of course war, um, caused by war. Um, so there's, there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of lessons learned that we should be applying from cases like Afghanistan when we look at Syria. But I think, you know, going back to, you mentioned you know, the, the memories of World War II and the destruction it entailed and the loss of life are somehow still fresh, even though most of us alive today weren't around then. They're still part of our, you know, cultural narrative. They're still there. And then I think, you know, on top of that, you have um, for Americans that Vietnam weighs heavy on them as well. And um, so there's much more of a reluctance to engage in any kind of conflict, um, especially in other people's conflicts. And um, you know, that's, that's largely a good thing that you should weigh very carefully the decision about whether to get involved in war or not. But on the other hand, what it's resulted in is um, making us very quick to jump to um, the, the sort of differences between us rather than the commonalities. To, so to emphasize, for example, oh, well, you know, Syrians, that's, that's their problem. They have a problem like ISIS because that's part of their culture and who are we to say um, you know that uh, ISIS shouldn't behave that way um, that's something indigenous to, to that part of the world and we shouldn't get involved we shouldn't get involved I, I, and if you I'm, think yeah sorry I, I want to just interject there because I was working in an office just a few months ago with someone who was uh, doing development work in uh, Afghanistan and was going to be going into Iraq. Um, and she said exactly those things. And I, I so wish that you had been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is the thinking. And yeah. the reason it's so prevalent is because it's easy. It excuses us from action, right? Like it allows us to walk away from these, uh, what, we, what we see as other people's problems and to not have any responsibility for them. And I always think back to the whole experience of the Spanish Civil War and how it contrasts with um, our response today. And it may also be that, well, it was in Europe and maybe it was easier for people to relate or uh, it might have those sort of, um, you know, race in, in connotations, I'm not sure, but um, the, it, it seems to me very striking um, in terms of how the left in particular, the differences between how the left responded to the war in Spain in the 1920s and 30s um, compared to how they respond to virtually all, all other wars today. I mean, you had this incredible international solidarity movement mobilized, and it wasn't just people talking the talk, they were walking the walk. I mean, they literally went and crossed an ocean and fought for the Republican side in the in the Spanish Civil War um, for the values of democracy and uh, for for the unions and against fascism, and and you you now have you know something that is so obviously fascism at play in 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 Syria, um, 
and and the left is silent. They're completely mm. silent. They don't even talk the talk, let alone walk the walk. Yeah. Of course, with a few important exceptions, you know, there's been um, people who have gone independently, former Canadian soldiers, for example, who have gone independently and fought uh, with with Kurds um, in in the Middle East, um, and and indeed some have actually died there, but not comparable to the numbers of people, the thousands and thousands of Canadians, Americans, British, and and others who went to Spain and and picked up arms and and fought and told the story of what they saw in Spain. Uh, we're just living in a different era now. We're, we're mm. living in an era where we don't have that solidarity with people. And we don't recognize that there are people with what we, we, we falsely call Western values there. Mm. I mean, I, I always say that um, the greatest Democrats, the greatest feminists I've ever met are people I've met in places like Afghanistan because they're actually fighting for those things and dying for those things right now. Mm. And those values are a lot more abstract to us today. Um, mm. Yet we have the gall to say that those are our values, that mm. you know, human rights and democracy and women's rights, uh, women's equity, that those are, those are Western values um, where the people who are willing to take the biggest risks for those things are, are brown people. <laughs> They're not white people. They're people living in very, very dangerous circumstances, fighting for those things in their own countries. Yeah, the cynicism that you see uh, with regard to, um, you know, just, well, most people, I think, um, you know, see any kind of, uh, say, um, willingness to fight um, you know, there, there has to be, they, they, they think there's an underlying motivation of, ah, this is just a scramble for resources. They want to steal stuff. Uh, they want to take the oil. They want to, um, uh, just, uh, they, they want to show they're tough. They want to show they're, they're the police off policemen of the world. Uh, that's, that's why they're really doing that. This, in fact, I, I know someone who was a, a refugee from Bosnia uh, grew up basically in Sniper Alley, uh, moved to, her family moved to Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, so she could have a good life. And it was Canadian soldiers who were part of that UN effort in, in Bosnia on trying to untangle, or at least, you know, keep those murderous sides apart. Um, but, and, and it was ge generally a, a U.S. led effort that, uh, ended the, uh, the, conflict in in the former Yugoslavia um and she just had nothing but contempt uh and like for for the uh, I'll I'll point out it, it it was remembrance day uh of I, I guess it was last year and uh apparently she was saying things like you know these these soldiers you know why 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 do we honor them they're all fools you know at, at best they're fools uh at worst they're you know they're just people who like killing um it, it's like the cynicism from someone who was actually um you know uh, a military force was used to extract her family uh uh from a dangerous place to put her into a safe place and and meanwhile also to help stabilize that country so that not everyone needs to leave that entire territory uh it was it was astounding to me yeah, it's astounding and infuriating. And actually, I think they do that because that is the dogma. That's the script you're supposed to follow. If mm. you if you have proper, I mean, I say far left, but unfortunately, it's kind of becoming the mainstream left. Like if you're part of the woke left, 
that's your script that you better stick to. You have to say those things. You have to be, you know, wary of going to the Remembrance Day ceremony and um, mm. show your credentials by critiquing the culture of, of militarism and mm. all this. And, um, and it's, it's very, it's very silly, but um, uh, yeah, that's, that's the era we live in and yeah. uh, it concerns me greatly. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to steel man the argument from the other side and see how we how we come uh, at it. So let's say, um, um, you know, okay, number uh, I'm I'm gonna include two facets here. So one is, um, yeah, the we we don't know enough about the for for Western countries to be involved overseas militarily. Uh, number one, we never know enough about the cultures that were. Uh, that are there that we, we, we invariably wind up making more of a mess, doing more damage than, than any benefit we're, we are creating. Um, and to, so, so, you know, to the extent that we, we may not even be fighting on the right side. We don't, we, we can't, we don't speak the language. We don't know. Um, and then number two is just the utility of it for all the blood and treasure that we spend to try to, uh, do good in the world, uh, and, and, you know, help one group against another far from our own shores. Um, you know, we just see failure after failure and we're not making a difference. It's a waste of our time. We should just let the rest of the world be the way it is. Uh, what, what would you say to that? So there's there's a fairly simple answer to that, um, surprisingly, which is R2P, responsibility to protect. So some very smart people have already thought through these issues and tried to come up with a framework that would help uh, help us decide when is it appropriate to intervene militarily in another country. And uh, that's responsibility to protect, uh, with, I should say, many contributions from um, Canadians to developing that framework but it hasn't lived up to its full potential um, for many reasons, but I would say one is, you know, this kind of um, culture we, we live in right now where we're not very excited to have uh, a framework that would facilitate um, military intervention, but the conditions are quite strict. Um, you know, they, they do say that uh, R2P applies only in situations where there is imminent risk of genocide of crimes against humanity. I mean, where there's like serious shit going down. You don't go in because of, of some small, um, you know, squirmish. Uh, you go into a situation like Rwanda to stop 500,000 people from being murdered. Um, so, and, and indeed Rwanda was part of the impetus for developing R2P uh, because we found ourselves again at the stage of saying, how did this happen? you know, and say never again, but not having tools to make never again real. Um, so R2P was an attempt to actually, you know, offer something concrete. And um, it's been very seldom applied uh, because of the strict conditions and also because it's new. I mean, we're in a early phase generally of any kind of international law, but especially of this type of international law uh, when it comes to, um, inter you know, violating sovereignty of, mm. uh, of countries. Um, and, um, yeah, so there's that, that question of what do you put first state sovereignty or the well-being of the human beings who live in these states and don't have much, much choice about the matter. So, um, I think 
you know, I have a lot of faith in R2P as being one way to navigate through some of those questions. Like, do we go in? Um, at what point do we go in? How do we go in? Um, you know, what, what do we need to know about this place before we go? That said, I mean, certainly the track record of Western nation builders <laughs> has not been great. I mean, we are, you know, I, I could talk for hours just criticizing um, the way development gets done and the way nation building is, is addressed. We're, we're still really in the infancy phase of development overall. I mean, development, as we know it today, started more or less in the 1950s. So we're in early days yet. Um, but we are not being very diligent about picking up the lessons learned and uh, not not repeating them. But at least it's it started. Um, but I think you know at the end of the day we have to we have to make human lives and human rights the deciding factor, um, and we have to be a little bit um, moral about it actually, and and say um, and ask the question, what would I want if I were in that situation? You know, if, if I were growing up on Sniper Alley in, in Bosnia, or I were living in um, Taliban-controlled Kandahar, Afghanistan, or I were, uh, you know, a, a, a kidnapped Yazidi woman in, in Iraq, what would I want the international community to do? And you probably wouldn't say nothing. Mm. Well, excellent points. I, I want to just deal with a, sort of a connected issue there. Uh, uh, you know, if we have a responsibility to protect, maybe part of the reason that it hasn't been working as well as, as it should is that um, even when you have the most clear-cut catastrophes and genocides, there's, there always seems to be some state actor that's willing to go in on the other side. Um, so, I mean, you, you can even think of, you know, with the Iraq War uh, or Gulf War II, uh, and, and uh, you know, George W. Bush going in um, and, uh, you know, Iran and Syria providing material support to the insurgents who are uh, using their guns, not just to uh, fight U.S. forces, but to take over neighborhoods and create uh, dungeons of torture and rape and just the worst things imaginable. There always seems to be some uh, actor out there that at you know f fairly negligible cost compared to say a western country sending a highly technical army uh can just do huge amounts of damage and, and just sabotage anything we do to try mm -hmm. to uh get involved uh just because they want to mess with us is is mm -hmm. like how do we get beyond that yeah i mean war should always be the last resort um mm. but it should be it should be a tool in the toolbox but mm. it's certainly always preferable to um to foster change from within and and mm. to support you know forces from within a country like the reform movement in iran for example um it would be much better if they could overthrow their government you know bloodlessly hopefully um, as opposed to a, a military intervention, which, yeah, just causes lots and lots of complications and opens the door to all kinds of spoilers to come in and take advantage of an unstable situation. Um, so I, I think it's, it's very important that you have, you have it available as a last resort in a you know, situation where 
um, there's the threat of, of genocide or great loss of human life. But, um, but you know, d democracy, uh, real true democracy building is, is a great uh, anti-war strategy. Mm. But um, we're just not, we haven't really quite figured out how to do it well. Um, and we're really impatient and it takes a long, long time to, um, you know, to, for the, the roots of democracy and all the, all that goes with it to, um, to be laid. But, you know, one, one thing I definitely don't want to neglect talking about, uh, when we're talking about the future of conflict is the democratic peace theory, because I think it's really important to this question. So that's, you know, simply the theory that democracies don't go to war against each other. That's the, the key. And uh, this is like a very, very rich field of political science. You have loads of researchers working on theory around this. And um, they have the same problem that we mentioned earlier, where they don't all agree on the categorization of, um, you know, both what counts as a democracy and what counts as a war. But by and large, they agree that uh, it's, it looks very much like that democracies tend not to make war with each other um, compared to non-democracies. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's important to explore too, right? The, that, um, you know, how can the pathway of political development of a country contribute to it becoming um, more peaceful and making the world more peaceful? Right, right. So it's not just who's got the bigger guns, but uh, who has the best ideas. And if you can persuade, maybe you can avoid yeah. some conflict. Um, Okay, uh, this has been a, a terrific discussion, uh, and you've been very generous with your time. So thank you for that, Lauren. Uh, if someone wanted to find out more about you online, uh, where would they look for you? Uh, feel free to promote any causes you're involved with. Um, go right ahead. Okay, so uh, let's see. Um, well, I, I'm executive director of a charity called Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. So pretty self-explanatory by its name, what we do. Um, we do focus on women and girls, but actually we only deliver education programming. All of our work in Afghanistan is, uh, is around education. So you can look us up, um, Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. And um, uh, I'm on Twitter for now anyways. <laughs> Sometimes I want to get off it when I uh, watch what's going on there. But um, yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff as well. Okay, well, um, thank you very much for coming on The Future Of. Uh, we've been talking about the future of conflict with Lauren Oates, and um, it has been a terrific conversation. I look forward to having you on again, but not for a while, because you have some good news happening. Uh, I'll, I'll let you do what you, you, you have to do. So uh, thanks very much again, uh, and for those listening, uh, I will see you in the future.